Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I'm Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights to free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Howard Gilman, the Chancellor of the University of California at Irvine, and previously the Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Southern California. A political scientist by training, he's the author of the 2017 book, Free Speech on Campus, which he co-wrote with the Dean of Berkeley Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky. As Chancellor, he helped spearhead the creation of the University of California National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement, which promotes research on free speech, particularly on college campuses. And in the spirit of full disclosure, I should note that he and I are co-authors, along with Mark Graber of the University of Maryland, of a constitutional law casebook, American Constitutionalism. And if there's not a fourth edition, it's probably because of this podcast. So Howard, uh, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Keith, always great to be able to talk to you. I appreciate the invitation. Uh, so thanks for joining me. So um, I do want to get um, uh, your perspective on academic freedom from the lofty heights of the chancellor's um, office in particular. Um, but I thought I'd start um, by asking about the free speech book. Um, you have a lot on your plate running a university. Um, so what made you decide to carve out time for a book about campus free speech? So uh, thanks. So every year since I became chancellor, I teach a class, usually in some constitutional topic. And uh, in, at that time, I was teaching with our law school dean, Erwin Chemerinsky. And in 2015, when all of these events started to kind of bubble up in a way that captured the imagination of the culture warriors. Erwin and I just agreed, look, I mean, this, there's something going on. It's a bit different than the dynamics that we've seen the last couple of decades. Instead of just listening to the commentary of people talking about what our students are like and what the problem is, why don't we just do a class on it and see if we can spend months and months with our students, hear from them, and, uh, and also see if we can teach them a bit about uh, these principles. So we taught a class, Free Speech on Campus, great class, students were amazing and uh, was, was wonderful to spend a lot of time with them on these issues. So you can get by the first couple of, uh, you know, uh, sound bites uh, and really listen to them. And, you know, what we found out is they are bringing really good values uh, to the table, right? I mean, caring about um, a learning environment that's non-discriminatory, caring about bullying behavior on the campuses, worrying about vulnerable people on the campuses. Those are all good things, which by the way, they learned in school, right? I mean, all of their schools had tolerance weeks and the right. like, but we also learned that they had not had an opportunity to do a lot of thinking about free speech principles, academic freedom principles. And if you don't spend time actually thinking about the topic, there's no natural intuition that anyone has for why you should protect speech that you think is dangerous or harmful. And so, and so as a result of that experience, we thought we had something to contribute. Uh, so Erwin and I sat down and said, look, this is a very important thing. It's happening across the country. Let's see if we can share our perspective on where our students are coming from, but then provide the historical background on these debates that some people would need to get caught up. 
talk a little bit about why it's especially important in an academic setting, and then really provide very clear guidelines about what campuses should and shouldn't do or can and can't do when it comes to regulating speech, because we knew the higher education sector could use that kind of guidance. So we thought it was important, not just because it was happening on our campus, yeah. but you know we needed to make a contribution, probably the same thing that motivated you to do the book, right? This is, things are happening, people are saying things that you don't think quite register with how it should be discussed. And so we all, I think, jumped in to see if we could make a contribution. Yeah, I didn't have to set aside running a university in order to write my book. I had, I had to set aside writing about you know impeachments and stuff in order to in order to do the, the speak freely book. Um, uh, but yeah, and you're also a much faster writer than I am. So uh, for you, maybe it didn't take that much time. It was a night. By the way, it's a nice break sometimes from the day in and day out. As you know, you know some of us were trained and to learn something that we actually know about and to. Right make our careers about that. Once you go into administration, why they should give someone who with a background in constitutional studies the keys to you know, stewarding a university is an interesting question. So the more I can still teach and write, you know, it makes me remember that there is something I actually know something about. I'm sure there's a lot of training involved to get you uh, ready to uh, do the current job, uh, which maybe we'll come back to in a minute. We'll come back to yeah, the, the extensive yeah. training I got to do this job. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so in the fall of 2017, uh, the University of California System President, uh, Janet uh, Napolitano, uh, announced the creation of the National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement. Um, you were heavily involved in that. You remain heavily involved in the center itself. Um, what was the impetus for doing that? And what's your involvement actually uh, been with that? Yeah, so President Napolitano, I think correctly picking up on how this was going to be a lingering issue and picking up on how sometimes when it's debated in more popular settings, it's not always debated in a way that fully captures, you know, extremely thoughtful ways of digging deep and that maybe great universities have a contribution to make as well. You know, organize actual thoughtful panels, dig deeper into what the issues are, give people a chance to debate them in a more systematic way. And so I think her intuition was exactly right. And she asked Erwin and I to help her stand it up uh, we recruited an amazing executive director, you know Michelle very well, Michelle Deutschman, and, um, and then be began the process of figuring out what a center that is rooted in an outstanding research universities kind of situation, what it could contribute to the national conversation. And uh, so we've been very happy with it. The center has done amazing programming. Uh, we've held conferences. Uh, there are uh, a, a lot of specific topics that arise that uh, you need a little bit more expertise on. And so reaching out to student affairs professionals around the country to help them manage one topic or another. And then of course, a great fellows program where we wanna bring people in uh, who have special expertise to contribute that expertise and then, and then take it back to their institutions. And it might've even been that you were one of our uh, fellows. Uh, so hopefully that was a meaningful experience for you as well. It might have been everything before yesterday was blurry. So yeah, you, you never you never can tell. I have to check my notes. Um, so uh, both your book and my book uh, focused a lot on sort of this campus free speech stuff generally and sort of these general controversies. Your book yeah. spent a lot of time talking about the First Amendment issues associated with public university campuses, uh, in particular on campus free speech. Um, lately, I find myself uh, talking more about academic freedom, uh, yeah. which is related, but um, somewhat distinguishable. Um, uh, so let me ask you then, what how do you think about the relationship between uh, campus free speech broadly and academic freedom more particularly? So, uh, you know, both are designed <clears throat> in different settings to protect people's ability to express views that otherwise might be silenced or censored in other settings. But 
after that, after you get to that point, they're very different dynamics, right? So free, in my understanding, free speech is a general societal uh, norm. Uh, it applies to your relationship to formal government officials and how much power you want to give government officials to censor or punish you merely for the expression of an idea, right? And, and in general, that means I think we, the, the hard history of free speech, uh, and as it slowly developed in the 20th century, was getting a better and better understanding of the risks associated with allowing government to jump in and punish you, you know, just because they thought that the idea you were expressing might be dangerous or problematic in some way. So, so that, that is in a general societal setting. And university campuses, since the Berkeley free speech movement, have been campuses both that do a professional job of research and education, but also are kind of fora for larger uh, debates. So the concept of free speech, especially at public research universities, does have a place. You wouldn't have all the anti-Vietnam protests of the late 60s and early 70s on campuses if we were only doing the job of teaching and uh, research. Uh, academic freedom, you know, and help me, you know, tell me if you disagree with this, academic freedom is really talking about what happens in the professional sphere of instructors, professors, in the process of them doing their jobs. And let's say, just for simplicity's sake, that mostly means what are they doing in the classroom and what are they doing as part of their scholarly activity. It turns out that in that space, uh, if, if what's true about free speech norms is that you're not allowed to punish someone for expressing a point of view that people disagree with, all we do in the professional norm is punish people for expressing viewpoints that some people disagree with. You wouldn't have peer review, uh, unless you were systematically analyzing and evaluating whether this view was defensible from your discipline's vantage point, you'd have a bunch of you know astronomers getting tenure even if they thought the moon was made of green cheese, and and students and faculty would just take their classrooms and transform them into places where they're haranguing people you know based on what is uh, top of mind for them to yell about on that given day. So we actually regulate a lot of. Um, viewpoint expression on the campuses. And in my judgment, and I know different people who theorize about this think about it differently, academic freedom resides, I think, within kind of the faculty as a mechanism by which, based on scholarly norms and, and a genuine commitment to uh, inquisitive uh, acquisition of new knowledge, uh, to figure out what, what kind of uh, speech activities, research activities, scholarly activities should be defended as part of our uh, effort to pursue truth and, and what stays out of bounds. And, and look, I mean, we, if, if, you're, if you're trying to get tenure in Department X and you have a view of some topic that the field as a whole, when they evaluate you, think is not defended properly, you don't get tenure, right? And, and so it, it does feel like a very different dynamic than the free speech dynamic. How, how, would, how would you describe the difference? I think that's, I think that's totally fair. I mean, and, and, although the AUP in its 1940 statement has yeah. both these two elements emphasizes classroom teaching on the one hand, being able to teach controversial issues uh, in the classroom without um, fear of reprisal from the university and your ability to pursue scholarship and research without fear of reprisal uh, from, from the outside. 
Um, but as you say, sort of both of which are sort of bounded by disciplinary norms and have all kinds of disciplinary uh, based uh, constraints on them um, as a consequence. But they also have this third element of participation in public life as a citizen, whether yeah. it's in the form of intramural speech of, of a citizen of a university or extramural speech uh, as a citizen of the country at large. Um, the way I tend to think about that is that, that third component of academic freedom is it really just looks like free speech generally, yeah. and it fits sort of awkwardly, I've characterized as a kind of prophylactic for, for that we have to protect that in order to adequately protect academic freedom, even though the structure of uh, people engaging in those in that kind of speech and the logic of why you'd want to protect it yeah. um, looks a little different than why we protect people when they want to publish a scholarly article, for example. And, and you also want to make it very clear to campus uh, administrators yeah. that they, they have no authority to stop their faculty from commenting on general public issues because they want to maintain a purely kind of scholarly ecosystem in the professional realm. You know, unlike, let's say, contemporary newspapers frequently limit what the yeah. newsroom personnel should be able to tweet because they're a bit worried that if they say something a little bit too controversial, it's going to kind of, you know, uh, come back right. on the institution and undermine the legitimacy of the institution. So to that extent, you know, we're, we're actually, as a profession, committed to protecting people in a stronger way, e even than the news media is when it comes to reporters. Yeah, certainly one of the challenges about academia is we let all of our uh, disagreements and half-baked ideas uh, hang out there in public for people to uh, to see. So um, uh, given that, let me, let me jump to this question about social media um, uh, since yeah. we're on the topic. So social media uh, creates, I think both opportunities and challenges for the culture of free speech um, on campus for professors Social media does create some opportunities to talk to a larger audience in an unfiltered and immediate way. Um, but we're also, of course, seeing a lot of blowback when professors say controversial things on social media, not to mention various other people who are part of the campus community when they use um, uh, social media as well. Um, university leaders then are frequently called upon to denounce or even fire faculty for things that they say on such platforms. Um, do you have a statement in your file drawer already prepared um, for when those demands uh, arrive on your desk um, as to what you say on such occasions? Well, happily, uh, I don't have, no, I don't have a statement in my uh, file drawer, but I have tried to spend years and years and years <laughs> making it very clear to my campus community what my point of view is about it, right? Not that it's going to protect anyone once all heck breaks loose, right. but, uh, but at least I'm pre-committed uh, to having a certain point of view about it. We can all call you out for your hypocrisy when you undermine it with your future yeah, statement. Exactly right. The hypocrisy, you know, you, you, think, you think that's what your point of view is going to be until you're right in the middle of, uh, you know, of the battle. But, uh, you know, I listen, I'm doing my best. And, um, you know, in general, look, I mean, I, I try not to have uh, strong points of view about whether I like something or don't like something if it seems inevitable, right? Let me, yeah. I, I only have a certain amount of worry I can bring to bear. And it doesn't worry me that people are out there expressing themselves. Most of the time, it seems just great. There's a lot of disciplines within uh, academia that are getting a lot more traction uh, in the public than would have been the case if you just had to go through journal submission and kind yeah. of review process. So it's, I think in general, it's a net benefit. And if every once in a while, someone says something that makes people go uh, nuts, uh, well, that's the current condition that we're living in, right? And yeah. It's really why should we be immune from that when every other institution in the country uh, also sees it? At least part of our benefit is that we have very clear principles of academic freedom and free speech to fall back on should we choose to do that. Um, you know, the bigger issue isn't 
that it's it, it does it can get incredibly disruptive and then occasionally pretty scary and even right. I think risky uh, for the academic community when you're in the middle of that kind of firestorm. And so you know if you're very very risk averse, you don't want people to do it because you never want to kind of right. run that risk. That doesn't seem like an option. And so instead, what you have to do is prepare in advance enough to see whether you have uh, procedures in place to help faculty out if they're in the middle of the firestorm, whether you're providing the right amount of support. And I do think universities are now in a position where they have to do a lot more pre-planning about exactly how they're gonna respond under these circumstances. And I don't know if you've seen this, but Penn State University last year put together a a series of guidelines for faculty and administrators uh, for social media, controversies. Hmm. And it's a, it's a pretty good document with a lot of resources. And in advance, they sit down and they say, if you're a faculty member in the middle of this, here's your sort of checklist. You know, do you feel personally at risk? You know, tell an administrator to contact the police department. Do, do you think you need, you know, to have your, uh, uh, you know, your, your personal safety guaranteed right, right. in a stronger way? And then, and then what a department chair should do, what, uh, and, and what a, um, a dean should do and so on. And I think, you know, just as a couple of years ago when we had these protests on campus right. that a lot of universities weren't prepared for. And then in the wake of that, you needed to start figuring out how you're going to better organize protests to allow the event to continue. I think we're at a point now where we all have to get a little bit better at organizing the kind of guidance we're providing in advance to our community so that they know what steps they can expect from the institution if things happen. So you don't have a template public statement ready, but you do have an action plan ready for the university as a whole that if if the firestorm erupts, uh, y'all know sort of uh, what levers to start pulling? What levers to start pulling, what resources to push out, who to consult. Yeah, no, this is, you know, you you have this emergency management team and they used to worry about, you know, earthquakes and, uh, uh, you know, active shooter situations. And uh, you might as well just put that same, uh, uh, this issue into that same- uh, Twitter storm right there with earthquakes. Right, right. Yeah, the world we live in. Um, So so you've been chancellor now since uh, 2014. So you've uh, done this for an ungodly amount of time. Um, People take uh, different approaches to their role in senior leadership at universities. Uh, The 1967, Calvin report at the University of Chicago took a strong view that university presidents should largely avoid taking public positions on matters of public controversy. Uh, My sense is that most presidents have not embraced that position. That's still sort of a minority view, that sort of strong form uh, Calvin standard. Um, Do you have a worked out set of guidelines for yourself about um, your own approach to speaking out with an institutional voice about matters of public concern? Yeah, the, you know, the, the additional thing beyond the Calvin Report uh, guidance is that when you're in certain public institutions, maybe mm-hmm. especially California, it's very important for leaders of public institutions not to use their position to get involved in certain kinds of matters of public dispute, right? And, you know, the, the people of California create the University of California, which has turned out to be a pretty good system, not so that individual leaders of the University of California should weigh in on who the next governor should be and, and, uh, and uh, who the next president should be. So, you know, my own view, and I think people appreciate this, is I'm not going to speak about any issue, but 
there are issues that relate to the core of the university's mission that if you're not speaking out to it, then the community doesn't know that you care about the core of the university's mission and you're not fighting for it. And in some cases, it's pretty routine. If the legislature is thinking about some additional support or not, you know, we try to make sure we can tell our story in a strong way. Everybody thinks that's completely ordinary. Uh, but uh, increasingly, when it comes to how the campus should be functioning, right? What a right functioning campus is, you do have to speak out on, on matters that your community cares about. And I think, you know, most recently, if members of your community are subjected to harassing and dangerous kinds of threats, if they're being um, uh, targeted and uh, uh, in a way that makes it impossible for them to feel as though they can right. be, they're gonna be supported and they can do the work they need to do on the campus, then I think it's the obligation of a campus community to mobilize in support of uh, our uh, community, members of our community. So, so we'll do that. You know, when the social justice uh, protests happen in the right. wake of the, the murder of George Floyd, it just wasn't possible to sit on the sidelines. Among other things, members of the campus community wanted to recognize that we, that this was a societal issue and that we all had some responsibility to address it and that we weren't immune from it, right? So if you don't say something, that's sending a certain kind of message. So you have to speak to that. And plus we have police on campus. We have a UCI police department. And uh, part of our responsibility as leaders on the campus is to figure out what the right way to police a community like ours is gonna be. So, so, so my own view is that when it comes to like partisan issues and the like, not going to weigh in on it too much, but when it comes to things that really uh, reflect the core values of the university, then you know it's not just that we can speak out when uh, occasionally when we need to, but I think we have an obligation to speak out. Um, so as we record this, MIT is uh, still reeling from the fallout of a departmental disinvitation of a invited faculty uh, speaker. Um, there are a couple of issues here, but um, first, let me ask about disinvitations um, as itself as a phenomenon. Um, how do you think universities should deal with this problem of calls for disinviting speakers um, that uh, some people on campus uh, find controversial, which we've uh, been grappling with for years now in all yeah. kinds of different um, uh, contexts? I do think this situation is a little distinctive because it involves um, a scholar speaking at a departmental event, and so it's not the same as a commencement speaker or an outside speaker, some student group um, uh, invited. Um, uh, but but universities are now flooded with these sort of disinvitation calls. What's your view in general about how universities ought to think about the disinvitation as an as an option? Right. So not sure about flooded, but I understand that it happens every once in a while. Uh, we we can talk about how big or little or medium uh, the, sure. the problem really is. Uh, I know that, by the way, universities and colleges are being flooded by state legislatures trying to prevent uh, certain conversations about the history of race on this campus. That, that seems like a flood. I'm not sure this is a flood, but uh, certainly something to pay attention to. And, you know, for us, when we think uh, someone has been invited to an authorized university event, that, that's all that there needs to be said. And we're, we're very clear in our principles on campus and our policies and procedures and I even add this in my convocation remarks every year to new students so that they can hear it right off the bat, that we are not going to prevent someone from coming on campus who's duly invited to be on campus just because some people don't like that viewpoint. And, you know, we were lucky enough to have Milo Yiannopoulos on the campus back in 2016. It seems like a million years ago. Came to campus twice, actually. Lots of calls that he shouldn't be here because, you know, he was only here just to, just to stir things up. He wasn't contributing anything interesting to the academic debate, but the college Republicans and others went through the normal process. They invited him. They have a right to do that. 
And so we did the hard work necessary, even with some student protests to make sure that the event went off just fine. And the event did go off just fine. You know, on the other hand, no one has a right to be invited to a campus. So you should probably think a little bit harder at the front end rather than at the back end uh, about what the boundary conditions are. And, you know, I think that what's unfortunate about the MIT event is that um, uh, the, by all accounts, what he wanted to talk about was going to be of great interest to that particular academic community. Uh, you are seeing this phenomenon where if someone has a controversial view on something, in this case is views about affirmative action or uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion policies on the campus. People thought if they disagree with that, they shouldn't invite him. I, you know, this, my understanding, although I don't have any firsthand knowledge, is that this was a department chair. Department chair suddenly felt uh, over uh, their head, uh, talked to some colleagues, and the colleagues thought it was going to be nice and straightforward. Suddenly now they're organizing event. And what happens occasionally, especially if you're not consulting enough with other people on the campus, is that you just decide to capitulate and say, look, it's not worth it, right? I, I'm used to it, right? If I'm organizing a, a whole university event, you have to know that you're just going to get that blowback. And, but, it's, but if you're in that particular department and have never experienced this kind of uh, assault uh, coming from uh, the internet, uh, it's, it's easy to see if you're not prepared in advance how you can decide that you shouldn't do it. I, I, I think it's, it's unfortunate. Uh, I, I think in the long run, he's going to be fine. I think if Princeton jumped in, right, and uh, yeah. made sure he had a forum, and many, many more people are going to hear his views about diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion initiatives on campus than would have been the case uh, otherwise. But, but um, you know, it, it, it is part, I think, of a larger feature of our current polarized political environment and our social media ecosystem that people on both sides have really drawn lines, right? And, and the, the natural inclination of people in social media who are strong participants in these debates is to treat the other side as not just having wrong opinions, but having very dangerous opinions. And if there's any, you know, uh, line to be drawn, the line goes there, you know, on the left progressives draw the line in one place, the right draws the line in a different place. And it's become commonplace to, to treat people that are on the other side as, as uh, dangerous and not worthy of listening to. And the one thing I know about colleges and universities is that we can't incorporate those norms into our practices and still be colleges and universities. So. So you, I, I think you do need to stand up every once in a while uh, under those circumstances. I don't think anyone has a right to get invited to a campus under any circumstance, but disinvitation in particular in a situation like this, it strikes me as probably not what everyone thought was, should be the normative. Uh, and, um, and maybe if they had a chance to do it over, they would do it over. Although I'm not sure that uh, we've heard from them that they think that. <laughs> yeah, it's not yet clear, I think, actually, what uh, MIT thinks about this. So far, they've been willing to defend uh, the decision. One of the things I find frustrating about the MIT situation is that you've not seen um, a clear statement from the university president, for example, that really does sort of uh, say that disinvitations are a bad thing, one shouldn't do them. Instead, they have emphasized we ought to be balancing uh, things. So, so, so there is a sort of question about what the leadership's own posture is on, on this question um, that goes to the substantive issue about disinvitations. But, but the other issue that does seem to be involved here and that you touched on a little bit in your answer as well is 
um, uh, not only the, the particulars of the substantive question about this happens to involve a disinvitation, but there are other controversies that arise in other contexts in which you have people all spread out all over the university making their own decisions. As you said, this case, a department head um, who finds themselves in this unfamiliar position of having to deal uh, with uh, these kinds of controversies. Um, uh, Yale Law School is currently um, uh, dealing with um, uh, the fallout from a campus administrator intervening in some uh, disputes among the students at Yale Law School about what speech uh, was controversial. Um, uh, and there are questions again about substantively about what the nature of that intervention was and whether that was a good idea. Um, but there's also just a question from a university leadership perspective of how do you prevent those things from happening and how ought you to deal with them when they do happen, that people are making decisions all over campus. You've got a big complicated campus. You've got lots of administrators, department heads um, yeah. all over campus making their own individual decisions about these things. What can you do as a chancellor of a university to try to uh, head these things off and prevent them from happening in the first place? Is there a way, for example, um, uh, to make sure department heads know they shouldn't be disinviting people um, before they find themselves suddenly having to make an ad hoc decision in the middle of a, a controversy? Yeah, you know, the, the important thing to remember, especially about big research universities, is that we're, we're not really like companies that are kind of organized and here's the policy and everybody follows the policy. We're cities, right? And, you know, I don't regulate the day-to-day -day activity of our Earth System Science Department, thank goodness, right there. <laughs> you know, that The block of that city is doing its thing regardless of what the mayor thinks. And, right. um, and it is... It is remarkable how much decentralized decision making there is on all of these related issues on campus. When we decided, you know, a number of years ago to really tighten up our events policy to make it very clear what our position was going to be, the first thing we had to encounter, I thought it would just take like a couple of months, but the first thing we had to encounter was the number of people on the campus that have some authority to uh, secure space for an event. And if it was just right. the student center or kind of the major uh, places on campus, that's one thing. But, you know, Department X has a room where they normally hold their workshops. Right. And, and, and so you, you push out the policies and procedures and you, you make sure that as many people as possible know about it. But we have tens of thousands of people. Uh, not all of them think that every single time I say something, it deserves their undivided attention. Uh, I don't understand that. How could that I be? I don't understand that. No, that's uh, definitely for the best. Uh, there's no question about it. Stu students tell me that they learned where their delete key is on their keyboards by, by looking at my emails. And uh, so that's where they know that it's in the, it's in the upper right-hand corner. And, uh, and, and so, and, and you, you promulgate a policy and you make it very clear and then you point it out to people. But there, there's naturally going to be limits. I mean, I, I'm actually surprised, Keith, that there aren't more examples that are coming up. And if, if every once in a while, a department administrator, not guided by the university, does this and suddenly finds himself or herself in a difficult position, talks to some colleagues, the colleagues no longer want to have the event, you know, because right. it's just not worth it any longer. Yeah. And they say, why don't you just, why don't we just move on? You know, that, 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 kind of thing. I, I would think if it was very systematic, given how everyone on both sides of these debates is always looking for those examples to get outraged about, right. and given that there's thousands and thousands and thousands of colleges and universities, I think we would see it a lot more frequently. So e even when you're doing your best, a situation like this is going to develop. And I'm not forgiving it. I do think when yeah. it happens, you have to say right things about it. Uh, but um, uh, I, I try not to get too worked up about it, but I, 
but I, I, I do think you use it as a teaching opportunity and to say, under these circumstances, you do realize that this invitation is setting a kind of precedent that you're really not going to want to set. I, I do think that's an important thing to say. Yeah, you said earlier that you don't think this kind of thing is a flood, for example, that um, uh, uh, I don't know how we ought to characterize it, a trickle or something else. But it's, um, but, you know, but one of the little debates that circulate around the campus free speech stuff in general is, um, is an argument about whether or not we're in a crisis of, of a campus free speech crisis at the moment. How big of a problem is this? Is it a little problem, big problem? You know, there's certainly other things um, that are also uh, disconcerting, such as uh, changes in state legislative uh, policies that affect universities that are uh, quite disconcerting. Um, so looking across the sort of wide range of concerns that exist and all the kinds of problems exist, how big of a problem do you think we have at this, uh, at this point? Does your office wind up fielding complaints about faculty speech or our other speech of other people on campus um, all the time? Is that a regular part of the job of your office or is this the exception rather than the norm? It's the exception rather than the norm. When it happens, then everyone's mobilized and the poor people who have to answer phones in my office, you know, have to have to work uh, even harder, and they don't get their other work done. Uh, mostly, though, it just doesn't. The day-to-day -day activity, it just doesn't uh, come up so much. Certain things happen every year that you can predict. Well, if this group this week is having this protest, and the next group that week is having their protest, you're gonna you're gonna get a little bit of it. But you you get proactive on it, and and then you just understand that when people inevitably say something that's going to cause that corner of social media to go nuts. You, I, I think by now, I, when I started the job, I, I got a little nervous about it. Now I think I'm a little immune uh, from it. Um, and I, I don't know how, how big or how little is it. So I know FIRE has this, uh, yeah. you know, this list of over 400 cases over the last X number of years where people have been subjected to cancel culture targeting. Right. And, you know, I haven't gone through every one of those. I went through a couple of them and I know you had a good conversation uh, yeah, with yeah. folks there uh, with them. And you know, some of it is undoubtedly disturbing when when it happens. Other of it, it just feels like, yeah, well, you know, nothing happened to you. You got criticized. Some people tried to silence you. No one did anything about it. And I, I don't know how worked up to get about that. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, when you compare that I, I, to, for example, systematic efforts by government to prevent universities from talking about extremely important things, then I think it pales by comparison. Right. And, right. and so uh, if you really wanted to know where I think most of the action is, that's a major assault on academic freedom and free speech. I think that's it. And, and I think your Washington Post column uh, article really uh, captured that uh, point. Um, you know, and when you compare it to like the history of higher education, I mean, think about the number of leftists whose careers yeah. were either destroyed or never got started, you know, in the 30s, 40s, 50s uh, and beyond. You know, compared to that, this also seems like small potatoes. Now, but just to be fair, there's undoubtedly a dynamic on the campus from both sides, but just to kind of recognize the MIT example, where very strong arguments have been made and persistent arguments that haven't gone away, that people who articulate certain views that seem inconsistent with our commitment to create a non-discriminatory learning environment, uh, want to make sure that if you know, campus speech uh, assaults certain vulnerable members of our community, that puts it in conflict with some of these other obligations. That, that, that's a real thing. Sometimes the, it's a good point. At other times, it's a little more um, problematic uh, as with, you know, disinvitation under circumstances where there shouldn't be. But the last thing I'll say about that is that that's not just progressive left students 
making their case. The federal government has investigated universities uh, under the Office of Civil Rights in the uh, Department of Education, some of whom have just engaged in speech events that some people think uh, are discriminatory against them. And and so when the federal government is defining non-discriminatory learning environments in ways that implicate things that maybe you and I would consider to be normal speech events, that's just not a couple of students, right? That's the power of government creating certain expectations for universities. And so that's another reason why I think this isn't going away. And it's, and it's a bigger issue than just what the attitudes of certain students and related faculty are. Yeah, no, I think that's certainly right. It's um, partially, um, as you say, there's nothing that compares with sort of systemic uh, governmental efforts to uh, intervene in speech to, uh, when we think about how uh, problematic that could be for how universities ought to operate. And I think similarly, it can be true if, if university regents, for example, um, um, systematically start intervening on university campuses. Um, that has effects and consequences that are quite different than than individual uh, disputes that arise in, in particular cases. Right. Um, although I, your last point strikes me as quite important in this context that partially what we've seen increasingly on both the right and the left increasingly um, are people leveraging these legal rules and, yeah. the, and the institutions and practices have been put in place um, in order to implement some of these legal requirements in order to uh, ratchet up the nature of the conflict. And so it's no longer just um, I'm offended by um, a given speech or I disagree with by a given speech, but I made unsafe by a given speech. It's harassment that um, somebody is engaged in the speech and, and that winds up triggering a lot more um, um, effort on the part of the university uh, to deal with it. And, and, and puts us in a challenging position yes. given what the potential is to kind of tr- undermine a university's federal funding, you know, if right. you don't get it right. I mean, I think the previous administration uh, had someone, people who were working in the Office of Civil Rights in the Department of Education that were very concerned about anti-Semitism on campus right. and, and re-upped some old investigations that had been put away uh, relating to universities that had uh, permitted certain anti-Zionist activity, right. uh, speech activity on the campus on the grounds that, well, maybe the university didn't do quite enough in that context to either put uh, guardrails around it or uh, reach out to Jewish students uh, about that. And, um, and so that's not an abstract thing. And if, you know, if you hear that from the government, it's easy for me to you to say, you know, in our book, you know, our principle is that you should be able to express any idea without punishment on a campus. If the federal government says we're going to launch an investigation and you have to do X, Y, or Z, you know, one one thing I know as a campus administrator is it's hard to tell the federal government, go jump in a lake. Right. You got you got to be a little bit more sophisticated about how you respond. Right. Yeah, that's, that's certainly more complicated. I should just note, I guess, uh, given given my position with the AFA and uh, relative to this, uh, your point about the list of uh, 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 people targeted for um, uh, their speech that uh, fires put together and the like. I mean, part of the concern um, that arises from that are not only these specific instances and how many are there really and, and how bad were the outcomes in some of those cases. Um, but also um, uh, one thing I don't think I at all appreciated until I started doing this work uh, was how many cases are below the public radar on these yeah. events. I know FIRE has them as well, but we also at the Academic Freedom Alliance have been dealing with them in which maybe half of the cases we're involved with are not public cases, but instead we're trying to deal with 
um, people who are um, uh, privately um, in the university disciplinary process and are trying to seek assistance. Um, yeah. And so I, I do sort of think these public cases are a bit of the tip of the iceberg problem, and it's a little hard to know how much is submerged underneath uh, the waterline. Um, and then they also just have this sort of broader chilling effect, which, of course, yeah. the court likes to talk about in free speech context in general. But but has, I think, real implications in this context where people take a look at some of these kinds of high profile cases. And I'm struck by the extent to which people see these things play out and think, I will continue to tweet just like I was before, right. <laughs> just, right. despite well, what's happened. And But other people certainly have seen this reaction and they make the kind of calculation you just referenced in terms yeah. of the dismutation, for example, where one says, well, this is just too much of a hassle. I wanna just avoid this entirely. I'll just drop this whole topic out of my syllabus. Um, I won't write um, on that particular topic anymore um, because it's just not worth the, the, the risk that might be involved in, in uh, this blowing up. In addition to the chilling effect, I mean, the other reason I think the Academic Freedom Alliance work is gonna be important is that uh, you're also recognizing that when some of these events happen on campus, you're not seeing the faculty of those campuses mobilizing in support of their colleagues, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it would be nice to think that we lived in an ecosystem where uh, academic freedom principles were extremely well understood and there was a consensus opinion within faculties about what the boundaries of uh, speech are and the circumstances under which they could come to the aid of, of um, uh, their colleagues that are under siege. Uh, but I, I think you're seeing that's, that hasn't usually been the dynamic that you're seeing on campuses. And I know that when I started doing this work, you know, my academic Senate, it's a great academic Senate. They, they actually thought, can we, can we have some sessions on academic freedom? And they invited me in and we, we talked it out and they had a chance to ask some questions. But you know, under normal circumstances, these are not issues that people think about enough in advance, right? Yeah. And, and I think the more that uh, you know, people are modeling what it actually looks like to recognize the circumstances under which a defense of academic freedom is necessary, then that's gonna have an important educational effect, I think, hopefully across, across higher ed. No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's not something I thought very much about when I was starting out in the profession. It was not not the highest item on my agenda to worry about uh, this in particular. And and it's also, as you say, a complicated set of principles. And so a yeah. lot of people who don't, for example, grapple with free speech issues in their scholarly stuff, I think will find the kinds of issues that come up in the academic freedom context um, uh, hard to grapple with and hard to think through what the right principles are, how to think through the applications of yeah. them, et cetera, uh, when they when they first encounter them. And so um, uh, spend, uh, and so on one hand, it's not surprising, I think the faculty don't necessarily speak up in some of these instances because it's, it's outside their expertise and uh, not something they think about. Um, but also, you know, as is true of human nature in general, lots of people think, why should I get involved in that fight? It's not my fight. <laughs> it's a, no, uh, let me stay out. And, and, and that's the same reason why I'm sure you're seeing chilling effects in a variety of ways on yeah. campus. Things that maybe you and I, if we were teaching con law 20 years ago, we would never think twice about putting that on the syllabus and inviting right. that conversation in the class. And, you know, at a minimum, I know people are thinking twice about it. Um, yeah. And it is, you know, we're, you know, faculty are there sitting around, they're trying to do their job. Uh, and to just to invite kind of additional craziness into what is already, you know, uh, you know, good hard work uh, sometimes doesn't seem uh, worth it. But um, so I, I, I do think, you know, it is the, the easiest path forward for a lot of people is the path of least resistance. Right. Uh, and, and part of what free speech controversies always raise uh, 
yeah. is, is, you know, the path of least resistance isn't right under this circumstance. And, you know, it's not just university communities that don't always, you know, respond the way that we would hope they would respond. It's, it's the entire history of the country uh, demonstrates right. that that's, uh, that's what we can expect. And even some of the strongest free speech uh, identifiers uh, in the public sphere right now the minute the tables are turned and someone is saying something that they don't like, yeah. they're, they're, they're the first on the line to forget uh, the basic principles. So what did, what was that book free speech for the, for me, but not for thee? Uh, yeah, yeah. Matt Hentoff. Right, um, right. That, that is still a, a very fundamental dynamic. And uh, but uh, you know, we have no other choice than to try to keep making the argument, whether these values persist in the wake of our political polarization and these dynamics on campuses is uh is is an open question which is one of the reasons yeah. why we keep doing this work well one reason why i think it's useful to talk about these things outside the context of specific controversies because once we get mired in the details right. it's it's easy to start picking sides and and um and and everything gets caught up in the substance of the particulars of the dispute um uh useful for people to think through a little bit what their principles ought to be before they find themselves confronted with quite that um uh you know it's doesn't uh, solve the problem, but but hopefully makes it a little better uh, that when we actually encounter the controversies, we'll, we'll behave a little better if we've thought it through first. And, and I don't know what you think. I mean, sometimes people like you and I that identify as strong free speech supporters, we right. think, look, strong free speech supporter here. And then when something happens, our job is to kind of tell everyone what their point of view is. But, you know, the, the, these lots of people disagree. Yes. About what the free speech norms. I've noticed that. Right? You noticed that, right? And how many different people have we talked to the last number of years who have fundamentally different views of what academic freedom even means, right? Some, yeah. of, some of the leading scholars in the country who have done extraordinary lifelong work on academic freedom disagree with you and me about what right. the boundaries of speech should be on the campus. Right. And so one of the reasons why the UC National Center for Free Speech and Civic Engagement is there, right, is to deepen the conversation and kind of get away from finger wagging to really letting people talk it out, get those voices there. And and my guess is that these norms are going to continue to develop. I mean, what yeah. should the norms of incitement be? Right. You know, is the Brandenburg test always going to be the test in light of various other kinds of speech acts that can lead very predictably to extremely harmful circumstances? If, is the court's current thinking about what workplace harassment looks like, is that really going to survive a fundamental transformation in our culture of what uh, an appropriate workplace is going to be? And right. And so, you know, I think that it's inevitable over the next few years, not just that some people are going to be schooling other people, but you are going to see a developing landscape as we get, I think, deeper conversations on these questions. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. Um, so, so one thing I certainly wanted to try to get a sense from you of is, is how these kinds of controversies play out um, in, in a leadership position. I think from the outside, from faculty perspective, it's often the case to find ourselves looking at university presidents who are in the midst of these fights and, and uh, not understanding why they seem to be uh, sacrificing the principles of academic freedom that they're sacrificing, why they seem to cave in so easily to um, the pressure. Um, uh, why can't they tell people to go jump in the lake uh, more often when these things occur? Um, so um, what's your sense about what kind of pressure university presidents uh, face in these kinds of moments when a particular controversy breaks out on their campus? Um, and, and why do you think so many of them fail to respond uh, with sort of more aggressive defenses um, of these kinds of free speech principles? Yeah. So as with the larger question of whether this is a flood or a trickle or this yeah. or that, 
I, I, I don't have very strong opinions about how, you know, why do so many university yeah. leaders always fail? You know, certainly the failures are there, but there's a lot of university leaders and a lot of uh, events. I, I did see back in 2015, 16, yeah. there were very clear examples where I think people were getting, they got, um, they, they were surprised by the kind of vitriol that was coming on campuses, the response to that vitriol from certain uh, corners of the campus. And, and then they're in the middle of it and we just hadn't practiced. We hadn't practiced essentially the bribartization of you know, political discourse on the mm -hmm. campuses. When, when it was very clear right in 2015 and 16 that, that certain people wanted to come to campus for the specific point of driving lots of people completely crazy on the campus. And, and, and triggering uh, outraged responses. Yeah. And I think there's, there's, there's no doubt that at that time, a number of folks who you invite, you know, um, uh, Shapiro on the campus and uh, people say, this is outrageous. And then some person who hadn't thought about it in advance, a leader says, well, how about if we put, you know, we'll balance out the uh, event with, a, with, a, with another person and there could be two people on the panel instead of just Ben Shapiro, right. you know, that, th there were a lot of mistakes like that where I think they just got caught up in some unprecedented questions that they hadn't faced before. And one of the reasons, again, why Irwin and I wrote the book, why you wrote your book, yeah. is to kind of help people who hadn't thought about it before and didn't have the natural instinct for how to make the argument to provide them with the argument. Like there, right. there's no doubt that you know, circa 2016, 2015, almost every leader on a campus could at the drop of a hat give a speech about how fundamentally important diversity, equity, and inclusion is for the well-being of a campus. That right. everyone got that pattern down, right? And those arguments down. But they had never practiced the arguments about why are we protecting this person who's coming to campus and saying all these terrible things about members of our community. Right. And if you don't know the arguments or practice them, you're not going to figure it out. And so I, I think people are in a slightly better position now than they were a couple of years ago. And occasionally you're going to see the, a department chair here and maybe a provost there make a statement that we would disagree with. But I think the arguments are uh, better. So yeah. the, um, uh, uh, but there, there's still, I think it always has to be reinvented. Like I think mm -hmm. I did a lot of work and you did a lot of work when our books first came mm -hmm. out to talk to people. I mean, I met with, you know, all of the presidents and chancellors of the Cal State system, a lot of other university systems, the lawyers representing colleges and universities, uh, just to kind of, you know, Erwin and I did a lot of those events yeah. uh, just to work that stuff out. I, there was a national organization for student affairs professionals. So we went to that to talk to them about it, you know, but a, a couple of years later, if you don't, if you're not practicing the arguments, yeah. you know, you might uh, misremember them. So people know at a high level, a higher level of abstraction now that free speech is also going to be important. And when they get in the middle of it, hopefully they'll just take the time to consult with the folks to get their bearings on how it should happen. But um, do you have a theory of, uh, of why you think people disappoint you more often than you would like? Uh, people are always disappointing. And so that's, that's the way the world works. Um, so, so I don't know exactly. I mean, I do think that um, I, so certainly I think the point you just made, I think is uh, part of the explanation um, that a lot of 
university presidents just have not thought about these issues very carefully going in. Um, uh, it was not part of their background, particularly. And so when they find themselves in the midst of the controversy, they're just trying to navigate their way through it. And um, if you're just trying to uh, find uh, the, play, the point of least resistance and navigating through, that's, that's sometimes going to lead to uh, weaker uh, positions. I also didn't think that the pressure has largely tended to come from only some directions, right? So you hear a lot of, uh, which came up a bit when we talked about disinvitations, for example, you hear a lot of voices that say, this is really terrible. Um, you need to do something about this um, offensive uh, speaker um, or, or this thing that somebody uh, did or said. Um, and you don't hear a lot of pushback from the other side. And so it seems like it'd be easy if you're a university president to say, well, then the way of making everybody happy now is I ought to issue a statement that seems to um, accommodate those that are concerned. And and, um, and so partially for the theory of the Academic Freedom Alliance is that there ought to be some voices on the other side of that saying, no, no, wait, there's some other principles at stake here. Um, there's there's going to be some bad publicity, some bad uh, considerations on the other side. Um, yeah. You need to be trying to think about how to balance these things and, or, and, and recognize that there's a uh, larger set of fact factors here at stake than otherwise, but um, but you know part of what I hear from colleagues, for example, is is how often people think uh, you know are university presidents afraid that if they have student protests outside their office, they're going to get fired or something, and why can't they just say no to students uh, when when they're making some of these demands? Um, I, I it seems that seems less obvious as to why they don't say no in that context than it seems like why they don't say no to donors. But I know the donors are also an issue uh, from this perspective, and so. Um, uh, you know, so when you find yourself having to defend a faculty member who has said something very controversial, uh, for example, and you have students complaining in one ear and you have donors complaining in the other ear um, about um, how this was a terrible thing and what kind of institution are you running over there, um, I can imagine that you start making a calculation that uh, this is going to be bad for the institution and I've got to figure out a way of uh, making all these students and donors happier. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know really as to why why that that seems to lean so far and why people are so quick to react uh, to some of those pressures rather than uh, you know explaining that's part of what we do here. Yeah, so I think uh, so I, I've never felt like in a quandary under these circumstances. Mm -hmm. You know, so if, if the and I think it depends on the institution. Right. You know, there's there's going to be some institutions where some people are going to have a lot of pressure, but in maybe unpredictable directions. I remember when. Uh, University of North Carolina Chapel Hill was yeah. thinking of hiring Nicole Hannah Jones uh, into their journalism uh, right. school, and uh, I don't know that that's exactly um, you know de invitation uh, right. that uh, some people didn't like the 1619 project and right. didn't want their uh, school to have uh, that project you know as right. part of their school, but something happened, right? Yeah. Uh, so. Um, so I, 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 there's always going to be pressure from people that don't like, you know, the other side. For, for me, uh, and, and although in that context, the pressure came in particularly from a donor, apparently, right? Yeah, so donor, it's, um, right, that's right. And so, you mentioned donors and, and where the cross-cutting yeah. points are. So partially, and, I think the university, I mean, partially there's a regents issue and sort of to what degree regents were involved in the North right. Carolina decision, but partially there's also just a question of, um, you've got somebody with deep pockets that cares much about the university. They've given money before. They're going to give money in the future. Um, and they say, um, maybe I'm not going to give any money in the future if you make this particular decision um, uh, in this particular way. Um, that, at least, I understand why university presidents sort of right. find them, feel, feel under a lot of pressure under those situations. Um, uh, and especially, I understand that institutions that are not very well resourced. And so each one of those donations uh, may make a massive difference on the margins. 
yeah, yeah. And so that's so at least you understand that, and you yeah. still try to figure out how to understand other uh, uh, dynamics. Absolutely. The, the 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 other, I guess the other consideration that I I don't worry about, but I when it comes, I'm just going to deep and take a deep breath and just see if how long I can ride the wave. Is there are certain kinds of firestorms that just grind the institution to a halt. Right. And you might have seen this at Yale back in 2015 with yeah. the Halloween costume issue. Right. Um, and uh, and where what's going to happen is you're you're not going to be able to get the work of the university done. Right. This is a hypothetical. Professor X says something. Students are completely outraged. Right. Those students are going to follow that professor around. They're they're going to try to disrupt the class. So of course we know what to do under those circumstances. Right. They're not going to take the person's class. They're going to demand that something happen. You know, and and so not that that's a reason to capitulate. But if you're facing a situation where the university is going to be at a standstill for a long period of time, right? That's just a harder situation to manage, right? And um, and so I. I hope and expect that if and when I ever get in that situation, I'll do my best and we'll we'll take the hit and right. uh, and then see at some point everything dissipates. Right. At some point, uh, yeah. we'll see if that happens. Um, but if you're not in that position, then making it so that nobody's getting anything done, uh, it, that's just something you have to try to manage. So. Try to spend as much time in advance figuring out how to think through those issues. Make your position clear in advance so people making demands on you can be, it's easy enough to tell them, look, under I already said long time ago, under no circumstances am I going to do this, that, or the other thing. But it is, uh, I, don't, I don't lose a lot of sleep. I don't have a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> but every president or university I know is just um, waiting for that that yeah. story to come to them and right. when it does it's it look it's it's complicated and i'm sure there's been a couple of examples of presidents or chancellors whose choice was this university is either fundamentally at risk or right. we're just going to try to solve this problem as quickly as possible and whether that's the right or wrong thing i mean if you were in that position what exactly you would do uh, given the competing demands i don't know Right. I think I'm pre-committed, but I, I do think that's something that all of us can worry about. No, I think it's a hard thing, right? I think when you're in the midst of it, especially when the when the demands uh, or the pressures start seem, seeming um, uh, uh, like very strong ones, um, yeah, which which it sounds like, for example, that um, at least Drexel was talking that way when they had a professor that was creating lots of controversies on social media and, and Part of what Drexel seemed to be indicating was that they were fearing they're going to lose a tremendous amount of money if they didn't solve this problem. And um, at some point, those pressures become uh, uh, really severe and, and hard to deal with. Um, there are other cases where it just seems like the pressures seem seem like they're pretty small, and yet, nonetheless, the capitulation seems uh, pretty extravagant and so uh, harder to manage. I mean, one of the things I was struck by. So you're the totally wrong person to ask about this because you've actually thought through these issues and have positions. Um, but one of the things I was struck by um, in the Stephen Salida case um, at University of Illinois a few years ago in the reporting afterwards was the extent to which um, as that controversy erupted, the president of that university uh, was frequently talking to 
uh, her uh, fundraising office, her communications office, uh, not talking very much to her faculty, <laughs> for example. Um, and so it also seemed like you're getting one set of advice um, from one kind of person, um, often people who are not going to be deeply rooted in academic freedom principles, um, even to be both very aware of them, but also it's not their highest priority um, in thinking about them. Um, and so one of the things I was struck by in that in, in how that dynamic seemed to be playing out was just the extent to which um, uh, university presidents might not just be hearing all the right voices. And, and as a consequence, we're getting um, uh, pushed in certain directions that if they at least heard from more people, um, uh, maybe they'd be a little less likely to do. Do you have a sense about sort of what that kind of crisis management process looks like and sort of who winds up in the room and who doesn't and how university presidents could do a better job of making sure that um, when they are trying to navigate this crisis, the only people in the room aren't the fundraisers and the communications people, um, yeah. but also are people who think, you know, there's a mission to the university and we ought to try to stand up for it on occasion. Got it. So. Uh... I mean, I have never been, I've been in a, a number of crisis situations, never had right. a fundraiser in the room, just to you know, <laughs> further record. Uh, yes. And, uh, I don't want my silence to be interpreted uh, otherwise. No, important and, point to make. But it is, but when you're in the middle of something that's very hot and, and developing very quickly, uh, then uh, you, you do have sort of key people in, in, the, in the room initially. And sometimes it's, you, you have to do communication, right? So communication is very important under any circumstance and what you say really matters, right? And so let's get some advice about what to do. Um, uh, you know, general counsel sometime there just to make sure that uh, what you're saying is defensible and doesn't get everybody into a lot more trouble. Um, you know, other major leaders on the campus that you're people that are smart and that you think are going to give you good advice. You know, I, I love my cabinet and my, my provost and, you know, just to, sometimes you need a few people just to get outside of your head to tell you how to do it. A lot of these people, by the way, faculty members who just happen in a short period of time to also be administrators. So do you want to remember, you know, remind people, I'm also a professor of uh, law, political science and history. So I've, you know, that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago, but, uh, but hey, but uh, uh, the third edition of the book is, uh, is uh, out now. So of our book is coming out. So still doing a little work. Um, and then you need, you know, within the University of California, what's, what's I think great about our ecosystem is that you have a really strong shared governance partnership. And our relationship with the Academic Senate is absolutely central to, I think, everything the University of California does well. And, uh, and so it, it would never be the case that something important would be happening and we wouldn't be consulting with Academic Senate leadership under those circumstances. Yeah. So, yeah. so I do think now the, there's, there are, there are prints, questions of principle and questions of tactics, right? And right. You, what you wanna do is get most of the principles set in advance so that you're not sitting there for the first time wondering, should we protect this person's right to do this? Right. Um, the tactical, and I think that as long as everyone, and I know that people disappoint you all the time, as long as people are mostly getting the principles right, and then just figuring out the tactics, who they should talk to, what's the next step in communication, what do you have to say to this dean who might have said this one thing that they shouldn't have said, you know, then it doesn't seem quite as important to bring everyone in the room, right? right. The, the people in the room are kind of grounded in where they're supposed to be, but but the tactical stuff moves so quickly, this is why you need separation of powers, right? You're, you know, yeah. The Congress isn't going to do the tactical stuff in the right. middle of the emergency, you need administrators to do something. So, um, but I, I do agree that sometimes the mistakes that are made is that you're not either 
pre-planning enough in advance what you expect, or you're not getting the right kind of advice. And and look, I mean, the, the main point of this of jobs like this is that your responsibility is to make sure that you're hearing the right opinions when you need yeah. to hear the right opinions in a timely way. And that's that's the responsibility of leadership. Right. Um, so I'm sensitive to your time, which is very valuable, much more valuable than my time. So, so let me ask uh, two more uh, sure. questions. Um, so um, uh, one, it relates to um, uh, donations. So um, obviously you're at a public university, not a private university. Donations don't play quite the same role uh, for you that they do at some other institutions, but obviously not a trivial role either. Um, Lots of uh, complications about how you raise money from people who want to uh, support the university, but also often uh, want to support it in a very particular way um, and want to attach strings to it. Um, uh, Yale also is dealing with uh, fallout from um, uh, some of those strings that they were willing to attach um, uh, to a gift. Um, what do you see as sort of the challenges of uh, raising money from donors uh, while still adhering to the principles universities ought to adhere to? Um, and what kind of practical steps can a university uh, take to protect academic freedom while also raising money? Yeah, it's a really uh, good question. Not, not just something that I've encountered here, but at other institutions I've been part of. And um, so the most important thing at the front end is to, before you get too deep into educating donors about what they're interested in and where our passions might overlap, um, you gotta let people know that uh, a gift is a gift. It is a gift to the institution. It is then the responsibility of the institution to use its institutional decision-making uh, to move things forward. And if what they want is to give the gift and then continue to have influence over the, then it's not a gift. Yeah. And, yeah. and by the way, and among other things, you, you, you know, you don't have a tax deduction for something that's not a gift. So, you know, from a, both a very practical point of view, but an institutional integrity point of view, you just have to make it very clear at the front end. And, you know, there are, you know, I think not talking about any specific example on my campus, but, you know, there are examples where people want prof a Professor X type of person, right? right. And they want to give a gift because they don't think this voice is represented enough on a campus. And maybe they're right. Uh, and they don't want to be suckers, right? They don't want the university to kind of take their money. And then, and then suddenly they expected a professor X kind of person. And instead the university hires a professor, not X person. Right. Um, right. And, and so uh, you, you have to build trust. And if, if they don't trust the institution and, and believe enough in its basic academic integrity, then um, they shouldn't give the gift and you shouldn't ask for the gift. Uh, and within the university of California, you know, when we, when we have, for example, endowed shares, uh, but, you know, before all of those are finalized, the Academic Senate has a chance to take a look and weigh in. So that's going to guarantee a kind of check and balance that's, I think, really, really important. And, um, and uh, there's, there's less anxiety if I think you believe that the university in the past can be counted on to take something and steward it correctly and use the highest academic standards. So you, you, you just have to be willing not to enter into a relationship with someone who doesn't believe that the university can be trusted. Uh, and and I, I know that there's gonna be lots of shades of gray. And, and you know, if, if you can't get to that level of mutual trust, where at the, even at the end of the process, you're making it very clear, once this comes to us, 
these are the folks who are going to be recruiting the faculty member. These are the folks who are going to be supporting that faculty member. And, um, and you have, you know, you, you need to feel comfortable with that because if we don't do that, the university of California's entire reputation is going to be undermined. And I'm not going to take a gift and undermine the academic right. integrity of the whole institution. So, but I know that a lot of institutions are in different positions. They're more dependent. I don't want to say that therefore a lot of people are doing wrong things. I don't know that a lot of people are doing wrong things, but, but you, once you're practiced in this space, you get to know at the front end what has to be made very, very clear. And, and then that, that resolves a lot. Of, it, it helps you prevent a lot of issues down the road. So this doesn't count as my last question, but okay. <laughs> um, so, but, but as you know, that right before that there, right, you, you have to delegate a lot of this stuff as a university chancellor or president down to other people. In this case, you have a development office that actually has to go out there and negotiate the gift agreements and are developing out the fine print. You can have the big picture conversation with the big donors um, about those basic principles. Um, are there things you need to do or have done with sort of the people on the front lines about their raising money about, look, these are things you just can't give away when you're hashing out the fine print. These are values and principles you have to um, take into account um, so that you, you know where the lines are here um, or, or do you just trust that they um, uh, know these things are doing a good job? Oh, no, you don't just you don't just trust, you trust but verify. And um, uh, so you, you let everyone know uh, what the basic dynamics are going to be. And, you know, you don't just trust, right? I mean, it's not that they're negotiating the fine print and then yeah. no one else sees the fine. The fine print means it's written down somewhere, right? And uh, how so, much time are you spending looking at the fine print? Or is that sort of are you relying on general counsel or somebody else to be looking at the fine print? So I for, for most gift agreements of any that yeah. would trigger any interesting conversation like this. There's a whole group of people that sign off on it. There's a cover memo, and this person's looked at it. This person's looked at it. General counsel, provost, yeah, yeah. you know, comes to me. Then I get a chance to look at it. And and there's also template language, right? So uh, with respect to certain kinds of gifts, it's going to be very clear. This is what the process is going to be. No, you want to you want to standardize this as much as possible. It's not a whole bunch yeah. of fly by night people with napkins, you know, saying, "Hey, listen, but you know, between me and you." You know, you're the key advisor and we don't hire anyone unless you uh, nominate the person and we only look at the people you nominate. And you, you, at some point, if you write that down, it's not going to make it through the process. So I think there were nap a lot of napkins involved back in the day. So maybe <laughs> there was, there's fewer napkins now. That might be fewer, that fewer might be. napkins now. That's right. A lot more memos, fewer napkins. Right. Um, so uh, so let me pick up in the last with the last question about this trust issue. Um, and, and, you know, this this may not uh, be as as much on your mind um, out there in California. California as it is on uh, some people in other places. Um, so American higher education in general, I think is held in particularly low regard right now um, by the political right. Um, uh, public approval is dramatically down. Um, that has some political and legislative consequences um, at various places. There are proposals to raid university endowments. Um, they're coming uh, from the right these days. There's more and more state universities that face uh, legislative restrictions on their teaching and programming activities, some of which we mentioned before with uh, any critical um, uh, race, uh, race theory um, uh, legislation, for example. Do you have a diagnosis of your own about sort of the nature of the problem now and what universities can do to start to regain some trust on the right? So I do think it's it's a it's a it's a very legitimate issue, and uh, you you can't look at any polling about uh, higher education in the United States without realizing this is a major point of contention, and wasn't so much the case 15, 20 years ago. That's for sure. Um, then again, a lot of attitudes about a lot of institutions have become a lot more polarized, and so 
um, I mean, you know what the what the uh, the public opinion is on the U.S. Supreme Court and how that's evolved over the last twenty or thirty years. So yeah. not just us, right? In a in a deeply persistently polarized political environment, everyone's going to start taking sides, and and the press is going to get hit. You know, uh, Congress is going to get hit. Major institutions are going to get hit, and everyone's going to be expected to pick a side. Right. And higher institutions in a tough position. Right. Because in theory, we're not going to pick a side, but it's no surprise you get pulled in. So part of it is just that, you know, people are looking for targets. There's part of the populism. I think the populism in the country right now is is a resistance against kind of uh, settled elites. Right. And and uh, so any institution that seems to be in an institution where elites are very self-satisfied, uh, is going to get kind of chewed up, I think, uh, by uh, the political discourse now. And, um, and uh, so, you know, if, if we think one of the things we're proud of is that when we're one of America's leading research universities, well, by definition now, you know, we're an elite. And by definition, since we're in California, we're a coastal elite. Uh, and um, so that's kind of built into our, uh, the, the, our very nature. Uh, I, so, so part of it, I think, is just the larger political context. When you are in a political context where there's more uh, overlapping consensus between and among uh, party leaders and the like, I think it's less likely that everyone goes bananas to start focusing on this group or that group. Uh, having said that, there are corners of the campus that clearly uh, reflect overwhelmingly a particular political point of view. You know, if I were to look at you know, the day-to-day -day discourse in the business school and the econ department and the chemistry department, you know, wouldn't see a lot of it, right? But, um, uh, you know, in other quarters of the campus, it, it seems to be a bit homogeneous, not just in terms of the personal political preferences of individual faculty, but the kinds of themes that are discussed and, and what counts as a legitimate thing to focus on. You and I have been teaching constitutionalism for a long time. We probably prided ourselves in the fact that, you know, maybe by the end of the semester, no one could tell whether we were on one side of the issue or another, because we really wanted to be fair and balanced. And the minute the class went one way, we would go another way to kind of force deeper conversation. Whether that happens as much now, you know, is, is unclear. Uh, I, I do think overall, the lack of certain ideological diversity in certain fields in the long run um, is, is going to be problematic. Um, and, uh, but it's a very difficult thing to figure out what to do about. I, I think it's not within my uh, authority or my inclinations to tell a particular department as they're trying to imagine how to build out that department, what the next great contributor to that department is that, you know, to impose on top of all of this ideological litmus tests is, you know, I think in and of itself, um, uh, a bad step that would make things uh, a lot worse. And, uh, but in the end, I think uh, colleges and universities can only survive if there is a general societal consensus as to their social value. And that's especially true of public universities supported by everyone in their communities. They have to see themselves in our mission. And if occasionally this one student has a bad experience in this one class and another student has an opposite experience in another class, that, ha that has happened since the beginning of time and I'm not too worried about it. But um, if we can't at some point find a point of agreement about the overall value 
and and how the the ordinary experiences of students uh, are outstanding. Whether they're my college Republicans or my college Democrats, they come out of UCI thinking they had a great experience. You know, if if that becomes the main topic, then I think we can survive. If and either anecdotally or more systematically, it just seems that the institutions such as ours simply don't respect certain kinds of arguments, are engaged too much in self-censorship. In, in the long run, I think that that's going to be a very difficult thing for us to uh, survive. So yeah. we'll see. We'll see whether the fever of our political polarization at some point breaks. Um, but I do think it complicates our situation uh, when we get pulled into the culture wars. And we are certainly right in the middle of the culture wars in many ways. And I don't know, Keith, how do you get out of the culture wars once you get stuck <laughs> in? Um, I, just, I think you just keep trying your best uh, to tell truthful stories about what's going on. Yeah, I think I think that's right, right? But I, as, as you say, it's um, uh, it's a difficult situation that we all find ourselves in. You're sort of, in some ways, sort of hopeful the fever breaks at some point, but it's, uh, um, but, but universities are not the only institutions that are gonna be struggling in the meantime, um, but, yeah. but certainly it affects universities as well. Um, so thanks, Howard. I really do appreciate your taking the time to do this. It was a very useful um, conversation um, uh, for us, I think, in general. Um, so thank you for joining us. Uh, listeners can check out uh, Howard Gilman's uh, book with Erwin Chemerinsky, uh, Free Speech on Campus, which provides an accessible introduction to constitutional law regarding campus free speech issues. Please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on iTunes, which helps others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic freedom. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.